Thank you, Xavier, for leading us in those songs and getting our minds focused upon our great and good God this morning. Thank you for being here and assembling with us this morning as we have gathered together as a people of God to offer our worship and our praise to Him, to open our minds and to open our mouths as we have sung together, as we have prayed together, as we have gathered around the table of our Lord Jesus Christ together. And we have contemplated the eternal love that God has for each one of us as He has shown that in so many ways, but especially in sending His Son, Jesus Christ, here to this world. Before time as we know it anyway began, I believe it is the case that our great God wanted a people to call His own. He desired that they would be a special people. He desired that they would be a transformed people, a changed people. He desired, in short, that they would be a holy people. And while that desire certainly, I think, began with Adam and Eve, as we know, as we talked about a little bit in our nine o'clock session this morning, that very early on, at least in the biblical record, that sin entered into the world. And God, of course, had all of that in mind. He had a plan to save us from our sins, even before sin came into the world. But as he created Adam and Eve in his image, I believe he had that desire that they would be his people, that they would bear his image and show his image as they lived here on earth. But that desire really began to unfold as we continue reading through the Old Testament as he made promises to Abraham and fulfilled those promises and he began to uh, continue to make those promises and to reiterate them to his son Isaac and then to his son Jacob and then to the 12 sons and then to all the children of Israel. But his desire, I believe, to have a special people, a changed people, a holy people, was ultimately realized in Jesus Christ himself and those who would follow him. This morning, what I want us to think about for a little while is to just think about this one thought of God's holy people. And as we do that, there are a number of verses that we can look at this morning, but for the sake of time, we're only going to look at a few but we're going to be in the Old Testament and the New Testament this morning, so I hope that you have brought your Bible with you and that you will follow along as we study God's Word together. First of all, I want us to just take a few moments to think about this word holy and to ask the question, what does the word holy mean? That word is not a word that I assume we use in our everyday conversation. Uh, we may kind of allude to it, but we certainly know that it is a biblical word. It is found all throughout Scripture. And as you read through God's Word, you find words like sanctify, you find words like sanctification, you even think of the word saint as it is used in Scripture. And all of those words and more are really connected to what we are speaking of today. They are connected to the idea of being holy. In fact, the word saint and holy are from the same Greek root. And that particular Greek word means to be sacred, to be set apart for God, to be, as it were, exclusively God's, to be prepared for God in a moral sense, to be pure, to be sinless, to be upright. I like a couple of those definitions, and I've just kind of taken definitions from several places and put them all together in this one definition that you can see here on the screen. 
We think about holy as being set apart or sanctified for God, something that is sacred. But to think about it from the sense as this definition gives, to be exclusively His, that we don't belong to anyone or anything else, that we are exclusively God's, that we are God's own people. How often that kind of language is used throughout Scripture, that it was God's desire that He, that the Israelites initially would be a people for His own possession, a people who could truly be, be claimed, truly be described as his people, that they didn't belong to anyone else. And then that language being carried over to the New Testament and God still has that same desire for us as Christians that we don't belong to anyone else or any other thing. But we are exclusively his. We are people who have been prepared not for ourselves, but we have been prepared for God. The word saint, which can be translated holy one, and sometimes is, depending upon what translation you're reading from, especially in the New Testament, is one of the most frequently used New Testament terms to describe God's people. I'm looking at the New American Standard Version, which is what I use to preach from, and I study from a a variety of versions, but that's the one I've used since I was a kid, so I remember a lot of those verses in that version. But in the New American Standard Version, Uh, The word saint appears some 61 times in the New Testament. The word believer appears 12 times. The word Christian, probably the word that most of us use from day to day to describe ourselves or describe God's people, is only used three times in the New Testament. And so this idea of being a saint, someone who is set apart for God, someone who is exclusively His and belongs to Him, we have been prepared to do His will to please Him and not ourselves, is the overriding thought or word or term that is used to to describe those of us who belong to God, those of us who follow Jesus Christ. Although some people in the world may use the word saint to describe a perfect person, or maybe even we use that word sometimes, we may talk about a person that we know very well and we say that he is a saint, she is a saint, and and we're trying to say that there's a very righteous person, a very holy person, but sometimes it can come across as here is a perfect person who doesn't have the problems, the malady of sin that the rest of us deal with. Some people in the world, especially the religious world and especially the Catholic church, at least they used to use the word saint to describe someone who had died and now they occupy a special place in, quote, the church. You know, that that it's St. Peter or St. Paul or St. John and somehow they're kind of elevated above the rest of us and we don't have a chance really to reach sainthood, if you will. But it is a biblical term. And we need to use it in the right way. And properly used, I believe it describes every individual, every person who is a true follower of Christ, who is a true child of God, we can describe that person as being a saint. And if we fit into that category, we need to describe ourselves in that language. We need to think of ourselves as being saints, as being holy ones that we have prepared ourselves. We have devoted ourselves. Maybe that's a word we think of a lot when we think of holiness, that we have devoted ourselves to God and to accomplishing His will in our life. Having set that as a foundation then, we want to think about what we mentioned just a moment ago about God's desire for His people. And God's desire for His people has always been that they would be a holy people. Let's see that first of all when we think back to the Old Testament and look back into uh, the book of Exodus this morning. Again, there are a number of passages that we could go to this morning 
And I hope maybe this will kind of spur you to do a little bit uh, more study on your own, to think about this idea of holiness and it's God's desire even for the children of Israel to be holy. In Exodus chapter 19, let's begin reading there at verse 1. The writer says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Of course, Israel has already left uh, the land of Egypt. They are no longer slaves in that land. But the Bible tells us here in these verses that we've read that it's three months after they have left Egyptian bondage that God is telling Moses here that he wants Israel to obey his commandments. He wants Israel to be a people who would keep his covenant. God has entered into a covenant relationship with Israel. He is going to certainly be faithful to his covenant, but he wants his children to reciprocate in kind. He wants them to be faithful as well. However, I want you to be impressed with the fact that obeying God's voice and keeping God's covenant, I don't believe was an end in and of itself. Rather, I believe it was a means to an end, the end being that Israel would be God's special people, that Israel would be, in fact, as he says here, his kingdom of priests, that Israel would be his holy nation. He didn't want them to just be a, a nation that was good at keeping his laws, although they needed to do that. But the purpose of that is so that they would become like him, so that they would truly show themselves to be children of God, that they would be holy as God himself is holy. And really from this point on, I believe God began to teach his children, the children of Israel, many lessons about what it means to be his holy people. We're not going to continue reading here in Exodus 19, but you can look there if you want to on down in this passage. At verses 10 and 11, he says, this is what it means to be my holy people. You're going to have to be consecrated. You're going to have to be set apart. You're going to have to be dedicated and devoted to me, both on the inside and the out. It's not enough that you just come and offer the correct sacrifices that I have asked for, but I really want you. I want your heart. I want it to come from inside yourself. He said that being my holy people means that you're going to have to obey my laws and respect my boundaries in verses 12 and 13, that he had put up a fence. There was a boundary here at the, the bottom of the mountain that the people, not even the animals, were supposed to approach, go beyond that boundary. And they were to respect, they were to revere God enough to respect his boundaries. But in this whole section, I believe it is God saying to his people, you will be my holy people when you revere me as a holy God. And you show that by the way that you live. Yes, it was God's desire for Israel to be his holy people. Then we go to the book of Leviticus, just another example. And many passages that we could look at, especially in this book. That's, the book of Leviticus is, is sometimes we think of it as a uh, a dry, very tedious uh, book to study. 
Uh, and there certainly are a lot of laws, a lot for us to follow, a lot of details that God gives concerning his law here. But, but I would say to you, if you had to think about the book of Leviticus as a whole, it is really this one message is, should have been coming out. This should have been, just been shouting to the Israelites, I am a holy God and you are my holy people. And that's really the takeaway, at least for me, as I look at the book of Leviticus today, what can I learn from that? All, all of these laws and all of these details about sacrifices and all of those things, there is a lot for us to learn, I think, from that today. But we can learn from this book that God is holy and he has called us to be holy as well. Leviticus chapter 11, let's look here at these few verses that I have on the screen, beginning at verse 41. Uh, he says, Now every swarming thing that swarms on the earth is detestable and not to be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly and whatever walks on all fours, whatever has many feet, in respect to every swarming thing that swarms on the earth, you shall not eat them, for they are detestable. Do not render yourselves detestable through any of the swarming things that swarm, and you shall not make yourselves unclean with them so that you become unclean. And here's the reason for all of these laws that God is giving, not just in this chapter about clean and unclean animals, but really all of these laws that are found here in the book of Leviticus and elsewhere. Verse 44, for I, the Lord your God, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. And you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I, the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, thus you shall be holy for I am holy. Here in this chapter, one of those chapters that we might get lost in all of the details of the instructions that are given here. God is just giving his people, the Israelites, a long list of animals that, they, that were to be unclean to them. And as unclean animals, of course, we know that God was forbidding his people from eating them or even touch it, touching their dead carcasses. And that might seem very strange to us as we read a lot of these laws that were specifically given to the Israelites. Some of that may not register with us today. And we think, why did, why did God go to great lengths to get down to the very minutia? But here is the why, I believe, because as we are saying this morning, Israel was to be God's holy people. He says there at verse 44, I am the Lord your God. You are to holify or consecrate yourselves and you are to be holy for I am holy. Verse 45 again, thus you shall be holy for I am holy. Surely in God's saying here just twice in two verses that you are to be holy for I am holy, God was emphasizing and teaching Israel his holiness. He was teaching them about himself and his character and his desire. Because you are my children, you need to be holy people as well. This call to holiness, if we had time this morning, and it would take a lot of mornings, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. But if we had time to go through every verse, every text in the Old Testament, especially here in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we were to pull out all of these verses, all of these instructions where God was telling his people that they were to be holy and why they were not to eat certain animals and why they were not to intermarry with the foreign nations there in the land of Canaan and all of these instructions, I believe we would find that this call to holiness touched really every part of their lives. And it touched every relationship that they had, their relationship with God, their relationship with one another, their relationship with their fellow man that it all centered back and went back to this idea of God being a holy God and they being his holy people. 
But we all know, as we think about the history of Israel, that Israel oftentimes was anything but holy, right? And yet the fact still remains that this was God's desire for them. This was God's will for them. That they truly be a holy people. Well, God's desire has not changed for us. He still desires that we today, Christians, saints, that we truly be holy people. I want you to go to the book of Ephesians this morning. I know again, as I said here a week or two ago, that uh, Todd is teaching that here in the adult class on, on Wednesdays. So I'm not trying to step on his toes. And there's a lot of places that we could go in the New Testament, just like the Old Testament, to think about this particular point. But I think the book of Ephesians, at least in my mind, does a really good job of emphasizing that God wants us to be holy. Ephesians chapter 1, let's look here toward the beginning of this book, beginning at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we will be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us and the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Before God created the universe, as we talked about in our nine o'clock session, before God created anything that exists, He planned, He had it in His mind to send Jesus to be our Savior to send Jesus to give his life upon the cross, to shed his pure and precious blood, to redeem us from every lawless deed, as is said to us in the New Testament, to provide us forgiveness of our sins, as Paul is calling our attention to here in the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, to adopt us as his children. Now we have an identity. Now we can be called the children of God. But God's aim in doing this was that we would be holy and blameless before Him. That we would be that sacred people, that we would be a, a people who are exclusively God's. We would be a people who are prepared to do His will in our life. This is what God had in mind. We come to chapter 5 toward the end of this book. And you know Paul seems to still be thinking about this as he describes for us the relationship between Christ and the church, Ephesians chapter 5. Let's just read here verses 25 through 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless." Christ, Paul reminds us, gave himself up. <laughs> As uh, we kind of talked about a little bit this morning in Craig's class with Judas, that you know, he made the comment, or someone did anyway, that Jesus gave himself up. Jesus said, I am he, when the soldiers came looking for him there in the garden. There was no one who took Jesus' life. He laid it down. He freely gave it of himself. And so Paul reminds us that Christ gave himself up on the cross for us, his body, his church. Why did he do that? Well, he says here in these couple of verses that we just read, so that we would be a certain kind of people. 
so that we would be a holy people, so that we would be a spotless people. We would be a people who are sanctified for His purpose. Now our life is devoted to carrying out the will of God. We would be a people who are cleansed from sin. We would be this glorious, spotless people who are holy. You might remember if you were here a couple of weeks ago as our brother Reagan uh, talked to us on the last night of his meeting, I believe it was, about the church and what a, a glorious church it is that belongs to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And sometimes as he was talking about that, especially in a local church that we look around, we even look at ourselves and we think, well, I, I, I'm not who I should be. I still have room to grow. I still have sins that I need to overcome. I still have struggles that I need to get past in my life. And we sometimes look at, uh, unfortunately, among God's people in the Lord's church today, as was true among God's people, the Israelites of old, that they didn't always get along with each other and there was division <laughs> and there were problems that had to be solved. But I believe this passage here in Ephesians and the whole book of Ephesians is really looking at the church from God's perspective. And as God looks at us, He sees that we are a glorious people. He sees that we are a sanctified people. He sees that we are a holy people. That is who He has called to be. What great lengths God went to to send His only Son, Jesus Christ. What suffering Jesus endured, the depths of that suffering that probably we will never know, at least here in this life that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ went to in order to make us His holy people, that He willingly gave Himself up. He died so that you and I could be holy. Well, that kind of sets the, the foundation, I think, to think about this practically. And to do that, I want us to go to the book of 1 Peter and just notice a few things that the Apostle Peter has to write that it is God's desire for us to be His holy people, but what does that look like in our lives? First of all, from 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 13, Peter is making some conclusions here about what he has already stated about writing to these Christians who were suffering for being Christians and, and reminding them that their suffering was working in their life. It's not just the fact that they were having to go through hard times and deal with all these various trials in their life and there was no purpose or reason behind it. It was to test their faith and to strengthen their faith, to prepare them to spend eternity with God. And so he says that has a practical application for us each day here on earth. Verse 13, Peter writes, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours and your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Notice, first of all, that God has called us. God has called us for this particular purpose. God has called us to be holy as He is holy. That means we have a reason for living. That means we have a purpose. We have something to do, something to accomplish while we are living here. But Peter tells us, I think, just a couple of things about what it means to be holy in these verses. Number one, he says, being holy means that we are children of obedience. That when our Father speaks to us through the Word, that we are children who listen, that we are children who submit our will to His 
But also being holy, he says, means being transformed into his image rather than being conformed to our former worldly lust. Whatever those desires were that really attracted us, that appealed to us, that especially were in opposition to the will of God before we became Christians, he says, we have changed. We need to realize that we are changed people. That we're no longer who we were before we came to Christ. And notice, I believe Peter is telling us at the very beginning, at least of our reading here in 1 Peter 1 at verse 13, that this transformation process, first of all, begins in our minds. And then, of course, it comes out in our lives, in our actions. Because he says to us at verse 13, Therefore, the New American Standard says, Prepare your minds for action. You need to be a person who is prepared for God. You need to be a person who is prepared to do God's will, to accomplish God's will in your life. Some of the older translations use the, a phrase that maybe is lost on us, at least the younger generations here this morning, about girding up the loins of your mind. You know, what in the world is that talking about? But I think it's talking about the people back during that time, uh, their clothes were not exactly as, as ours were today, that most of them just kind of wore uh, a one-piece garment that was kind of a long flowing robe. And before they went out into the fields to work or before they went out to war or to do anything that was of significant activity, they would have to take that, that piece, that garment, that piece of clothing, and they would have to tie it up or bind it up around their waist into their belt so that they didn't trip or so that it wouldn't be a hindrance to them as they were working or going out to war. And that is the idea I think Peter is trying to stress to us here that we need to do that in our minds, that we need to gird up, collect all of those thoughts, prepare our minds for action so that we can live like God's holy people. We come to chapter 2, and Peter doesn't stray very far from this thought of being holy people. And we begin at verse 9, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Lots of Old Testament language there. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter continues this thought again of holiness and being a holy people. And he says... Here in this text, that being holy means that we belong to God, as we've already stated, that we are exclusively His. But more than that, he says, now, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are the people of God. We now have an identity. There's so many people around us, and sometimes even we ourselves as Christians, we're, we're kind of looking for our place in the world, aren't we? we? We want to have some identity. We want to have a connection to people. We want to have a group. I've, I've heard it said in the past that that is at least one reason why gangs have started because God has kind of put in, the, in, in each of us this innate sense of we need to belong to someone. We need to belong to someone greater than ourselves. We need to belong to a group of people. But here, Peter is stressing the point that we belong to God. And all of us together have a special identity as the people of God. Why are we holy people? Well, Peter tells us here in this passage 
we are holy people so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God to others. Isn't that a great mission to have? That we are to be out there in the world proclaiming the excellencies of our holy God to everyone who will listen. Being holy also means, as Peter mentions in this text, being aliens and strangers. That we are people who, in the words of of the Apostle John in his gospel, we are people who are in the world but not of the world. We have to live in this world where there's so many things that that, uh, frustrate us and so many things like the Apostle Paul when he went into the city of Athens that uh, provoke our spirit as we see sin just running rampantly around us. But it means that we realize that we are temporarily residing among a lot of unholy people. And we have to live in the world, but we cannot be of the world. We cannot have the same mindset of the world. We cannot say the same words that the world does. We cannot take the same actions that the world does. And connected to that, Peter also tells us here in this text that being holy means abstaining from feeding our fleshly desires, those things that we did before we became Christians that were sinful in God's sight, But on the positive side of that, he says it also means that we are engaging in good deeds that glorify God. It's not just that we are abstaining from living the life that we lived before we were Christians and that we have put away the works of the flesh, but now we have to put on, if you will, the fruit of the Spirit. And that must be evident in our life. Finally, from chapter 4, notice what Peter says to us here about being holy people. He says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. Although I realize the word holy is not here in this text, I I think the concept definitely is here, that Peter began the book in chapter 1, chapter 2. There's probably something said in chapter 3 about that. But in chapter 4, he's still thinking about us being holy people. And what he says to us here in 1 Peter 4, these first four verses, is this, that being holy means that we are pursuing a new course in our life. That once it was our course in life to pursue our own will, to do our own will, but now we have given ourselves wholly and completely to doing God's will. And it means that we have to run with a new crowd, that now we are a people of God. Now we are with the people of God, rather than trying to be like the Gentiles. That's what we did formerly, he says. And so I don't know about you. I don't know everybody's background here. But let me just ask you a few questions about your life before you became a Christian. Were you a person who pursued some of the sins that Peter mentions here? Were you a person who pursued sensuality in your life? Sometimes we think about that as being a sexual term, and it certainly does have that connotation sometimes. But it's just really describing Uh, things that appeal to our senses and things that are desires of the flesh that would take our mind off of the desires of the Spirit and be in contradiction to the Spirit. Did, Did you pursue sensuality? Did you pursue sex in your life? Did you pursue alcohol? 
Did, did you pursue wild parties before you came to Christ? Again, I don't know everybody's answer here. For some here in this audience, it's probably yes. For some others, it may be no. But if your answer is no, what, how about these things? Did you pursue money before you became a Christian? Or did you pursue sports? Was that your God? Or did you pursue shopping or education or a career or any number of other things that may in and of themselves be fine? But was that your goal? Was that your reason for living? Because I think we can find all of ourselves in this instruction here in 1 Peter chapter 4, whether these particulars apply to us or not. And Peter was reminding these Christians that he was writing to and us today that before we became Christians, we had plenty of time. The time passed is sufficient for you to have pursued a worldly lifestyle. But he says, now, now we are dedicated to God. Now we are people who are holy people. We are set apart to do God's will. We are holy people pursuing a holy God. And that will take the rest of our lifetime and more. Because as we thought of in the nine o'clock session this morning, our God is a great God. He is an awesome God. Are we holy people pursuing a holy God? You might think, well, this lesson's kind of challenging. And I agree that it is. Because being holy has never been easy. It was not easy for the Israelites. We see that they often failed in that. It is not easy for those of us who are saints today, Christians. It was not easy for first century saints. And it's not going to be easy for us either. But I hope if you haven't gotten anything else out of the lesson this morning that you will get this, that this is God's desire for us is that we be his holy people. This is why he chose us in Christ, to be his set-apart people, a people who are devoting our lives to being holy as God himself is holy. What about you this morning? Are you a holy one? That doesn't mean that you're perfect. That doesn't mean that you're better than the rest of us. But it does mean that you are a person who is pursuing God. You're trying to be like him. And if you have not yet made the decision that you want to come and follow his son, Jesus Christ, you are not a holy person. But God has made all the provisions necessary whereby you can be a holy person. You can leave the building this morning being a holy person of God. Do you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus Christ in any way? If you do, I want you to do that very thing now as we stand and as we sing.